0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, some colleges and universities see a focus on equity and inclusion as part of student success.
1: We were getting students to college, but there was a gap. Students weren't graduating at the same rate that they were enrolling.
2: We'll have more on that. Plus, we hear about a program that's training future military leaders to recognize the signs of mental health issues.
0: Those stories and more, coming up.
2: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition.
0: I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Residents across the state of Texas are still in the grips of a series of powerful winter storms, and the impact extreme weather has had on its homes, businesses, and overall public health is prompting some people here in Colorado to wonder if we are vulnerable to the same kinds of issues down the line. In
2: particular, the disaster there has raised questions about whether Colorado's power grid is resilient enough to withstand a sustained onslaught of brutal winter weather. Here to explore that question is Michael Booth, a writer with the Colorado Sun. Michael, welcome to Colorado Edition.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
2: So is Colorado's power grid equipped to handle a storm like the one that has caused such devastation in Texas?
3: The shortest answer is mostly. We are in pretty good shape and probably much better shape, unfortunately, than the people who are suffering in Texas right now. And we certainly feel for them. But I think we should also remind people that this does happen in Colorado on a different scale every year. Every time there's a wildfire and the grid that is supported by transmission lines and other power plants that get affected by wildfires has happened last summer. The Grizzly Creek fire affected water utilities, as well as threatening some electric utilities. So the question is, how do we handle that? And are we better equipped to deal with those kinds of emergencies?
2: At least in Colorado, we're used to the winter weather and, you know, things are winterized and upgraded.
3: There's a few things that are important if you want to make sure that you have that backup. One is to make sure that your utilities can take in energy, whether it's in natural gas or whether it's an electrical generation from other states through regional cooperatives. Colorado has some of those in place and we have transmission lines that go across state lines that can back us up. There are utilities that want more of that and there are regulators who want more of that and there are people who are going to be joining even more rapid fire at the ready emergency backup situations with other states and that will even improve that grid. But the other thing that's different is that The utilities commission here allows and encourages utilities to do maintenance and spend money on backup and then recover that from ratepayers so that when we pay our bills, it's not just the current electricity we're paying for, we're also paying for a safer and more reliable system. And so if you allow your utilities to recover for those kinds of costs and still make a profit, then they're better prepared for emergencies.
2: Some people are blaming renewable energy and an increasing reliance on renewables for what's gone wrong in Texas. You're right, it's not that simple. Yes, wind turbines can freeze, solar arrays get covered in snow, but fossil fuels also have problems?
3: Yes, and some of the biggest problems in Texas have been caused by the natural gas system literally just freezing up. And natural gas equipment doesn't work well in the kinds of extreme temperatures that they have, especially when you have not designed your system to be prepared for those. Texas just does not let itself prepare for that kind of cold weather, even though they get it fairly frequently and more frequently than you think, they haven't spent the money to do that. So things freeze up. And so if you're going to use renewables as a much more reliable and a much larger part of your power, you need to do things to prepare for that. You need to make sure you have a backup mix. You need to make sure you have natural gas generated power plants ready to come online when other sources go off, when the sun doesn't shine, when your solar panels are covered in snow, or when your wind turbines freeze. You also can make sure that your wind turbines don't freeze. You can put literally heaters, just like a car tank battery heater that you plug into the wall. You can put a heater inside the gears. You can cover the blades in a de-icer that has the snow and the ice slide off instead of stick. And in Wyoming, they their blades got stuck with ice. And so they had to cut back wind power that went to Northern Colorado. And so they had to seek some other sources in Northern Colorado, and that created a blip. But customers responded by turning down their thermostats a little bit and getting through it without any major disruptions to power.
2: And I'm curious, do you see what's been happening in Texas as potentially having a chilling effect? No pun intended. On the push towards more renewable energy?
3: It depends on how political, I guess, we all allow it to become and how much politicians try to take advantage of it to bring in non-factual arguments about the mix of energy that we have in Colorado. And yes, there are things that you need to plan better when you have a lot more renewables and a lot more sources. It's not as easy, and environmentalists are the first ones to acknowledge this, not as easy to flip on the switch On a wind system or a solar system or some even more exotic system than that as it is to flip the switch on a coal plant or flip the switch on a natural gas fired plant. On the other hand, coal piles freeze up. Natural gas plants have their lines freeze. People cut off your supply because other people are using the natural gas to heat their homes in another state and don't want to send it to you. So every energy source has its challenges. You need to make sure that you have a wide variety of mix and that you've planned for that kind of emergency.
2: For people who are concerned something like this could happen here, what are utility companies doing to ensure that they do have enough power in case of a, we get another severe and very long lasting winter storm?
3: One thing they're doing is adding backup to their renewable systems. So when you build a huge new utility scale solar array, as is happening as we speak all over Colorado, by Excel, by Tri-State, by some of the other large utilities, They are also now starting to build solar backup batteries. You can also do this with the wind. Batteries have come to a point where now you can do massive scale batteries to store up that renewable power for from four to eight hours. So that if, when the sun goes down and everybody comes home at the end of a hot summer day and flips on their air conditioning, you have four to eight hours of backup solar power or wind power stored in that battery that does not strain the grid and does not knock out your power sources. So that's one thing they can do. With energy and with something so important as utilities, it's important to not get cocky and to not think this will never happen to us. We should remember that the people in Texas are still suffering and we can certainly help them out by sending our attention and sending our money in some cases to them, but also to make sure that the PUC and other people in Colorado are thinking of the same things and making sure they're doing the preparation they need to Keep our problems, which will happen because weather always happens, and 100-year storms do happen, but just keep them to a minimum.
2: Michael Booth is a reporter for The Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Colorado's suicide rate among veterans is higher than other states and higher than the general population's. It's hard to say why, but a new program in Larimer County aims to intervene early on by teaching cadets in the Reserve Officers Training Corps ways to identify and handle self-harm. KUNC's Lee Patterson has more. The
4: training is called QPR, short for Question, Persuade, Refer. Those who use it say it's like first aid, but for a suicidal crisis instead of a medical emergency.
5: The goal of this training is to get you all aware and able to hold the conversation surrounding suicide and suicide prevention.
4: Carly Rayberg is the ROTC liaison for the Alliance for Suicide Prevention of Larimer County and a former cadet who graduated from Colorado State University last year. During a recent training for cadets from Colorado and Florida, she explained why she's doing this work.
5: We had an alumni who took his life about a year into active duty.
4: Because of that, she and her training partner are working with Arnold Air Society, a national ROTC service organization, to offer free training for cadets nationwide.
5: We're going to go now into how to ask the question. I'm worried about you. I'm wondering if you're thinking of suicide. And how not to ask the question. Saying you wouldn't do anything stupid like that, would you? You're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? It's very accusatory, very direct in a non-approachable way.
4: After Q comes P. You persuade the person to seek help, and then R, you refer them to resources.
6: My name is Marshall and I work for the Alliance for Suicide Prevention.
4: Marshall Spring is a former Marine and he's Burke's training partner. He ran the first ROTC training last March and has recently worked with people in construction, firearm sales, and law enforcement. Spring feels that mental health is starting to become recognized as a component of overall physical health.
2: I think
6: as a result, QPR and programs like it are coming online. And for QPR to be effective, we have to train millions to save hundreds.
4: He gives this example from early last year, when he met a man in his 20s who was in crisis.
6: He was drinking very heavily.
4: They cycled through the QPR step several times, but kept getting hung up on the refer part. The young man was refusing to go to a crisis center, but he was willing to do things for spring.
6: So I asked him if he would do me a favor and put the crisis number in his phone.
4: He did. Then he asked if he'd do him another favor, use that number to make a test call to the crisis center.
6: And he ended up being on the on the phone with them for over an hour.
4: Soon after, Spring found him a counselor and got his mother involved.
6: Haven't talked to him since, but uh, I do know he's alive and so it worked.
4: A 2018 study from the federal government found that because QPR is quick and cost-effective, more people can be trained to spot signs of self-harm when compared to more in-depth suicide prevention trainings. But does QPR training actually save lives? It's really hard to measure. Kimberly Pratt is a master QPR trainer in Fort Collins who works with Spring and Rayburg. Because
5: we might train somebody in QPR and we won't know if they're going to connect with somebody in a year or three months or three weeks from now. Pratt is also working
4: on the Colorado National Collaborative, a national experiment to reduce suicide by 20 percent in five years. Colorado is the pilot state and QPR is one
5: of the solutions on the table. We also know that it's effective really from a lot of anecdotal conversations. So people will come to us a week later or a month later and say, oh my goodness, I used this and it was so helpful. Can you come and train more people for us? Which brings us back
4: to QPR training for the next generation of military leaders. In Colorado, 173 veterans died by suicide in 2018. Nationally, it topped 6,000. So Carly Rayburg says it's not if,
5: but when these cadets will be dealing with suicide. It's going to be staring at you straight in the face when you go into your first duty station. And I want you to be the best prepared for when you enter active duty and have to have these conversations. She
4: says feedback from the cadets has been great so
5: far and that
4: more trainings are in the works. Lee Patterson, KUNC.
2: If you or someone you know are having thoughts of suicide, please call the Colorado Crisis Line at 844-493-8255 or text the word TALK to 38255.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The movement to reckon with systemic racism has been gaining momentum in recent years and has accelerated since the nationwide protests last summer in the wake of numerous police killings of unarmed black people across the country.
2: Here in Colorado, several institutions have started reflecting on their role in perpetuating systemic racism, and some are trying to direct more resources towards promoting equity and inclusion. One of those is Front Range Community College, which has campuses in several northern Colorado spots, including Fort Collins, Boulder, Longmont, and Brighton. They've hired their first-ever Executive Director of Equity and Inclusion, Abenicio Rael. And he's here with us now to talk about his new role and the changes that he hopes to bring to the school. Abenicio, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. So Front Range Community College just recently created this position of Equity and Inclusion Director. Why do you think they formed this position now?
1: It's definitely a response to really the, the blatant outright racism that we've seen in the last year uh, during a pandemic. We've also seen data around equity gaps, around education gaps. Colorado has one of the largest attainment gaps in the country. When we're looking at students of color and how many students of color or individuals of color in the state have at least an associate's degree or better, compared to white, Caucasian, or Euro-American individuals. There's a 35% gap when we look at attainment. And that's another reason why this position was formed, to begin to look at the data, disaggregating data by race, ethnicity, by gender, by first generation, and finding out what student needs are in order for them to be successful not just in course but for life after college as well i think
2: it's so important because i think years ago the thinking was just get more people to college and they'll be fine and then forgetting about how to help them succeed when they're actually in school i think front range Community College is expected to be designated as a Hispanic-serving institution in the near future. Can you explain a little bit about what that designation means and then how it might affect your work as Equity and Inclusion Director?
1: The federal designation is called Hispanic-serving institution for inclusive purposes and and for my purpose, I'm going to call it a Latinx-serving institution. And so you have to have a 25% full-time enrollment equivalent of Latinx students or better. The designation really gives opportunity to the institution to compete for Title V grants or federal grants. Um, There could be millions of dollars that come out of these grants. And, you know, even though we we call it a Latinx serving institution, really it benefits all institutional members, faculty, staff, and all students. Also um, talking about once we get there, how do we hold it? And how do we... um, create outcomes for students? Because I truly believe that it's easy to get students, uh, particularly Latinx students, and meet that threshold at the institution. But how do you get them to succeed?
2: Now, there's a certain defensiveness surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, a kind of insistence that it's not just about checking a box, but a sincere commitment to real change. Why do you think that is? Um. Well, you know, I think,
1: people are at different stages of awareness and, and movement, really. And there are people who are ready to do the work, who are ready to do the equity work, ready to have an understanding of diversity and know what inclusion means. Um, and there are people who are aware, but don't know how to do the work. And then there are people who just aren't for it, you know, and, I think those are, that's going to be the difficult area. And even no matter what stage individuals are at, we still have to do our own internal work, right? All of the biases that we've lived with, that we grew up with, that we were taught. And I, I, t- I say this all the time, learning is easy. It's, we, can, we can learn all about DEI. The hard part is unlearning. We have a lot to unlearn.
2: Well, you only just started in your role, you know, a few weeks ago. Can you tell us how you have started tackling this issue at the college? Where, where do you begin?
1: <laughs> I think the start is because it's a college-wide position is meeting with campus leaders at the various campuses, trying to understand the various uh, cultures and beliefs and espoused values at the different campuses. A theme that's come up in, in my conversations and discussions uh, college-wide is that the campuses kind of seem to be a little siloed. And they would like to see more bridging and looking at best practices and how those can be used college-wide. I don't really see myself as a leader. I see myself more of as a thought partner and providing opportunity to say, here's where one of the gaps are. And this is a resource that can help with this particular gap. We as an institution, we need to develop definitions for ourselves. We need to um, create an equity-serving identity. So how will you know if your efforts have been successful? So we had a speaker today, and he was talking about uh, a little bit about his history, and his grandmother lived in Mississippi. She was not allowed to vote. So she moved her family to California. And every time she went to vote, she took her grandkids and her kids with her, and she made them watch her vote. That, to me, was just really powerful because he talked about all of the movements, you know, the civil rights movements, the Black Power Movement, Black Panther, the NAACP, and Black Lives Matter movement, and how they saw the impact to bring it back to my efforts at the institution it's really going to come down to how do we see our efforts playing out? How will we know that we've been successful? And, and it's going to take a little while. You know, we have to look at data. And I think how we notice when we've made an achievement is by being on the same page and understanding that race, ethnicity, gender, disabilities lgbtqia that it all matters when we talk about diversity and inclusion
2: abenicio rael is executive director of equity and inclusion at front range community college thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you this was fun
0: The economic toll from the coronavirus pandemic has left many in the Mountain West struggling to feed their families. In fact, two states in our region are at the top of an undesirable list, with some of the nation's highest rates of child food insecurity. Nevada is tied with Louisiana at number one, New Mexico ranks third. Stephanie Serrano has a closer look.
6: Emily Engelhard is the director of research at the nonprofit Feeding America. It published the data on food insecurity in the fall. She says the story has two parts. One is that we're seeing the areas that historically have had the highest levels of food insecurity continue to have the highest levels of food insecurity. Especially, she says, people of color. And the second part of that story is the tourism and service industries have been disproportionately affected, and those industries employ more people of color. All across our region, food banks have become an increasingly critical source of food for families.
5: Hi, is this Stephanie? Yeah, hey. Okay, this is Marian Bedinsky, and I'm handing the phone to Big Bill. <laughs> Who comes here with his son to pick up food once in a while,
6: okay? Mary Ann runs the Poverty Resistance Food Pantry in Casper, Wyoming. The phone is getting bounced around as people wait to receive food. Hello? Hi, Big Bill. How are you? On the good days, there's veggies, fruits, and even hamburger meat up for grabs. But William Sells, or Big Bill as they call him, says other days aren't so lucky.
3: Sometimes you get the onions. And I guarantee you, I've made onion soup many a times for dinner. And my little boy loves it because he'll grab my hand and say, I'm just thankful you're here. In Nevada, Jocelyn
6: Landtrip says they've seen hundreds of new faces of recently unemployed families at the Northern Nevada Food Bank. But Landtrip says the new faces added to an already long list of people in need.
4: Our low-income neighbors had not recovered from the recession We had a significant issue with people who were working full-time jobs and still couldn't pay their bills. What
6: we saw was higher rents, higher expenses, incomes not really matching those expenses in our area. What the pandemic is doing well, sadly, is exposing communities who have always needed help. That includes communities that lack easy access to healthy foods, like the Walker River Paiute Tribe in Nevada. Amber Torres is the tribal chairman. The reservation is a food desert, she explains. The nearest grocery store is nearly 30 miles away. The nearest Costco is two hours away in Reno. Access is a huge barrier for us. When the pandemic first hit, the state supplied food boxes to those in need on the reservation. But eventually that giveaway stopped. So the tribe turned to the local tribal council and the Nevada Food Bank. To get our own food pantry um, established here on the reservation, because we we definitely know the the pandemic isn't going away. But that's not all. The reservation was able to tap into federal funds to invest in another sustainable project. We put some of our CARES funding into a food sovereignty program. You know where we um, planted in the hoop houses where we would be able to vegetate throughout the year. Hoop houses are outdoor gardens. It's one new source of fresh fruits and vegetables on the reservation, growing everything from apples to cucumbers and peppers. Torres said she immediately saw the impact of both the new food pantry and the local garden. We saw that there was a, a true need across the board. You know, even with these families that um, have two-income homes, you know, it was still... Something that was supplemental and really helped their family as well, you know, especially because, you know, you could go shopping for a small time frame that runs out during the week, you know, and then I don't want to put it like this, but you're SOL. The reservation is also stepping up its game by working with other community groups like the local Boys and Girls Club. They're helping them identify families with children so that the kids can get snacks when the families are visiting the reservation's new food pantry. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Stephanie Serrano.
0: KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org.
2: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we look back to the last time Colorado faced a public health crisis as big as the COVID-19 pandemic and how the state legislature handled it at the time. I'm Erin O'Toole.
0: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
2: Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.